Hebrews chapter 4. I think it's chapter 4, right? We're looking at verses uh, 1 to 14 of Hebrews 4. A few years back, um, H&R Block did a promotion that involved a drawing for a million dollars. And the lucky couple that won were Gloria and Glenn Sims of Sewell, New Jersey. But they refused to believe it when the H&R Block representative phoned them with the good news. And after several additional contacts, both by mail and by phone, the Sims still thought it was a scam. And um, usually they hung up the phone or they just threw away the notices when they came in the mail. Well, some weeks later, H&R Block called one more time to let the Sims know that the deadline for accepting the million-dollar prize was nearing and that the story of their refusal to accept the prize would appear on an upcoming NBC Today show. Well, at that point, Mr. Sims decided to investigate further. And a few years later, he appeared on the Today show to tell America that he and his wife had finally gone to H&R Block to claim the million-dollar prize. Can you imagine the regret that they would have felt if they found out too late that they'd missed out on the prize of a lifetime? Well, that's a lot like what the author of Hebrews is writing to us about in today's passage, so that we don't miss out on something even more awesome. As verse 8 puts it, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't hang up the phone. Don't trash the notices. <laughs> well, hear God's voice about what, though? Well, in today's chapter, it's to hear God's voice about the good news that God is sharing. Good news is translated gospel in some of our translations because that's what gospel means. Literally, it means good news. And this phrase shows up twice in our passage Verse 6 refers to those who formerly had the good news, the gospel proclaimed to them. And then verse 2 adds, for those who are, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. Good news. Good news about what? What could God be offering that's so awesome? What could be better than a million dollars, right? Well, in today's passage, we learn that it's good news about rest, God's rest. Verse 1 exhorts us, therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And verse 11 adds, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Now, when we in the church think about good news, when we think about gospel, rest isn't the first thing that comes to mind for most of us. We tend to think about grace, right? Having our sins forgiven, being reconciled to God so that we can go to heaven when we die. And that's all good news. That's very good news. But there's even more to the gospel than that. There's more good news. Or, or maybe it's better to say the gospel is bigger. The good news is even greater than that. It also includes rest, entering God's rest. 
but what's so great about rest? Well, to understand what Hebrews means by rest and why it's so great, we're going to have to do a bit of digging. We're going to have to do some background work because in using this word rest, Hebrews is referring to a very common story, a very common theme or pattern in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, which is, of course, the backdrop of of the people who are listening to the book of Hebrews uh, originally. They're very familiar with, with the world they live in and with the Old Testament world, but this is not so familiar to us in modern times. So if we don't dig back a bit in, into the thought world of Bible times, we'll miss the wonder and we'll miss the good news of what Hebrews is trying to share. Did you notice how many times in our passage the word rest appears as Doug read it? I count 11 times. But the way Hebrews is using rest here is confusing if you don't know the background. It's confusing because at one moment, Hebrews is talking about God resting on the seventh day after God created the world in six days. And then next, Hebrews is talking about Moses and the Israelites and how they rebelled and they were unfaithful. And and so they didn't enter the rest of the promised land. And then Hebrews is talking about a psalm, Psalm 95, from centuries later when David warns us, lest we don't get to enter God's rest. And then Hebrews starts talking about a Sabbath rest that remains for us today, which might make us think about the Jewish people who rest on Saturday. And then Hebrews applies it all to us and exhorts us not to fail to enter God's rest. And it's like, what is this rest here that we're talking about? I'm confused. (laughs) What kind of rest? Is it God resting from God's work? Is it the Israelites entering the promised land? Is it us keeping the Sabbath? Is it something we're still looking forward to? And, And what does this all have to do with the gospel? Why is it all good news for us? It's kind of confusing, but once we understand the thought world of the Bible and the way that they thought about rest, it should get a lot more clear and a lot more wonderful. So let me set the scene for this. It begins with chaos. Chaos was the thing that ancient people saw as the biggest trouble, the biggest problem and threat that they faced. And so they lumped a lot of different problems into the bucket of chaos. To understand chaos, let's say you move. You leave your comfortable middle-class lifestyle in the good part of town, let's say, a place that is nice and safe and orderly and prosperous, and you move out maybe to the wilderness Uh, maybe to another country that's less developed, maybe even to a bad part of town. And let's say you don't bring much money with you. You're kind of on your own with a few belongings. What you might experience there after you move as you seek to settle in and make a living for yourself with very little is some difficulty and some threats and some wildness, and some chaos. Maybe from the elements themselves, maybe from the weather, from weeds, from brambles, from mosquitoes, from wild animals, from lack of civilization, lack of creature comforts, unsafe water perhaps, unreliable food supply maybe. 
or maybe chaos from outlaws or, or a lack of rule of law from violence, from feuding, from crime, from gangs who demand protection money, uh, from an unjust court system, maybe from rioting or looting. There are so many problems, there are so many threats, there are so many difficulties in the world that we today try to insulate ourselves from, and so we can sort of take for granted the life that we have. COVID, of course, has gotten the best of all of us to some extent and forced its way through our defenses. Well, for the ancient world, all of these different problems and threats were a daily reality, as they are for many people in the world today. And so they had a word for this, chaos, disorder, trouble. And, and if you're the average ancient person, the chaos is a lot bigger than you. And you need help battling it just to survive. You don't have modern technology. You don't have electricity or bulldozers or vaccines to help you to tame the chaos. So what do you do? Well, you look to your king. You look to your ruler, and you pray to your gods, and you ask your gods to help you. And you pray that your gods will help your king defeat the chaos and establish order. And if things go well, you like these gods, and you want to keep them around to keep the chaos at bay. And so you build your gods a temple. And you serve them and you sacrifice to them to keep them happy. And the temple becomes, in your worldview, a headquarters, a hot spot, the place from which the gods are maintaining order and pushing back the chaos, keeping it at bay. And so the temple becomes the center and the hub of your society. And, and since your king is the earthly representative responsible for keeping the chaos at bay, you want your king right at the center, at the right hand of the gods, so to speak, so your gods will help your king maintain order as any good king should. So that basic backdrop, that basic assumption is in the water. It's foundational to ancient societies. And in fact, many societies turned this into a story a backstory, a foundation story for their society, for their king, for their empire. And the story goes like this. And maybe we can put up the first slide now. The gods that you worship and or the king that you serve went into battle against whatever forces of chaos were threatening you. And the gods and or the king defeated that chaos. They won the battle and then they journeyed back home to you. And when they got home, they built a temple or they built a palace. Temple and palace are the same word in a lot of ancient languages, including the biblical language of Hebrew. And guess what the gods and or the kings do after they build their palace temple? They sit down on their throne in it and they rest in it. They rest. That's the word these stories use. Resting doesn't always mean that they don't do any work. It means rather that they're no longer at war with the chaos. And so now they can enjoy being in charge. They're done with the hard job of subduing the enemy and the chaos. And they're done with the journey and they're home now and they're at peace. Now they can rule their kingdom in peace and it can flourish and it can be at rest. 
And so think of rest in this story being like, uh, if you've seen the Avengers, it's Hawkeye's secret home where his wife and children are. Or if, if you've read or seen Lord of the Rings, if we can go to the next slide, rest is like Rivendell, where, where Elrond is at home. Rest is a place that's peaceful, that's safe, that's secure, that's welcoming, where the hero and his people can come back from the danger and the difficulty of battling the chaos and be at rest. All right, we can take the slides down. Now, if you look at this storyline of battling and defeating the chaos and the enemy and then journeying home and then building a palace temple and enjoying your rest, if you know the Bible at all, this story should be ringing some bells because it's all over the place. We find it first at creation. God defeats the chaos and makes order out of it. The cosmos before the creation starts in Genesis 1 in darkness and with chaotic waters, right? In the ancient world, chaotic waters were the main symbol of chaos. And God speaks into that darkness and that chaos and orders the cosmos and furnishes it, makes it habitable, makes it good. And, and then there's no journey in this story. But on the seventh day, God has done all this and God rests. And we don't have time this morning to go into depth, but there are all these signals in Genesis 1 that what God has built, that God rests in, uh, is God's temple. The creation itself is God's temple. We see this in that God puts his own image in this temple, like every ancient temple had an image of the God in it. We also see it in that it takes God seven days to prepare his temple and then to take his rest in it. And ancient temples were often consecrated and put into service through a seven-day ritual. The creation itself, Genesis 1 is telling us, is God's palace temple in which God takes his rest. Now, I'm not saying that because all these pagan stories had some of the same imagery that, that the Bible is pagan. I, I'm just saying that the Bible was written to the culture of those people in a way that they could understand. And God told the true story of creation in a way that people could understand. And the ancient Israelite people faced chaos just like everyone else. So this resonated with them. It resonates again when we get to the book of Exodus with, with Egypt and, and Moses. And the Israelites are slaves and they're being oppressed. And then God comes and God rescues them. God defeats the chaos that is Egypt and leads his people through the chaotic waters out of Egypt on a journey with the goal of bringing them to the promised land where a temple will be built for God to dwell in. Of course, getting all this done and getting the temple built takes a long, long time, partly because of the people and their unbelief and their rebellion, which Hebrews is going to pick up on. But the eventual goal is that God and his people will enjoy rest in the good land together. And repeatedly, books like Deuteronomy in the Old Testament use language of entering God's rest to describe entering the promised land and entering the temple to worship God there. 
And that's a lot of background just to paint a picture of what the Bible means and what the book of Hebrews means when it talks about God's rest. I hope that was helpful. So you have that picture in your mind. You have that backdrop. And it's the reason that the author of Hebrews can jump from creation to the Israelites in the promised land to David and the temple and refer to them all as rest without missing a beat. Because it's all the same pattern. It's all the same story of God and God's kings defeating chaos, taking his people on a journey, and then building a palace temple where they and he can enjoy rest. So rest is the happy ending of the story. When God is at home in his temple among us to bless us, to protect us, there's no more chaos. We're living in peace and prosperity. We're flourishing. There's harmony. It's the good life. It's the life free of chaos. The life people have always longed for. That people build suburbs to try to create for themselves. And what scripture tells us is that we really only have this life through God. When we're in God's presence. When we're in right relationship with God. And God and his king are reigning in our midst. That's where we really experience rest. The world doesn't do a very good job of Stopping the chaos apart from God, though we try. Let me ask you, would it be good news to be invited into the kind of rest that the Bible is pointing us toward? Would it be a tragedy if this kind of rest was offered to you and you missed out on it? Like that couple in Sewell, New Jersey, almost missed out on it. Well, that's what our passage today is talking to us about. Here's the good news, the gospel that the book of Hebrews is joyfully offering us. The author repeats it three times like any good preacher would do. Verse 1, the promise of entering God's rest still remains. Verse 6, it still remains for some to enter that rest. And verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath day rest for the people of God. Rest, 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 remains, it remains, it remains. The offer of rest remains. It wasn't just at creation. It wasn't just for Moses and the Israelites. It wasn't just for King David's kingdom. The promise of rest still remains, and we have been invited into it. That's the good news. And if we've been following Hebrews, if you've been with us following the book of Hebrews, we've already learned how to enter that rest. God sent Jesus to be the king, the savior, who through his death on the cross conquers the chaos and the disorder and the enemies of darkness and then leads us on a journey home. And then Christ starts building a new palace temple to take up his rest in. And wonder of wonders, the book of Hebrews tells us right now, we are that temple. 
And so we're invited into God's presence, the place of rest. Until which time Christ finishes establishing a new heavens and a new earth in which we'll live with him and God at rest forever. That's the good news through Jesus Christ. It's an invitation into the good life, free of conflict, free of chaos and disorder. But here's the problem that the Hebrews are having, the people this, this book is originally addressed to. They've taken Jesus up on this offer, and it doesn't always feel very much like rest yet. Do you, you know that experience? <laughs> it doesn't feel like the chaos has been defeated all the time. It doesn't feel always like Jesus is a victorious king. For the first recipients of, of, of Hebrews, it feels like the Roman Caesar is king. And instead of giving them rest from chaos, Caesar is causing them more chaos. Remember, he's persecuting them. So what's Jesus doing about Caesar? It still, still feels to the original uh, hearers of Hebrews that, that they're more in the wilderness, like the Israelites, than that they've entered the promised land. And this is where, as is so often the case, the theologians remind us that salvation is both already and not yet. We already get to taste and to experience it, but it's not yet fully here. Later in the book, the author of Hebrews will, will remind them and us of some of the aspects of rest that we already enjoy. The author will remind us in chapter 6 that we've been enlightened. We've tasted the heavenly gift. We've shared in the Holy Spirit. We've tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the coming age. We have had tastes of that rest and more is coming, much more, if we hang in there and we don't give up. And the author acknowledges in, in other ways that we're still like the Israelites, that we're still wandering in the desert, that we haven't yet entered the rest fully. And that's where the author of Hebrews shifts in our passage from sharing good news to leveling a serious warning. The author of Hebrews is saying, I know it's hard, but hang in there. Don't be like the Israelites who gave up, who grumbled, who rebelled and disobeyed in the desert on the journey, and so they didn't wind up entering the rest at all. Verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the Israelites' example of disobedience. And verse 2, the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. What Hebrews recognizes in giving this stern warning is that you can't separate or pull apart faith and obedience. We're saved by grace through faith, right? We respond to the good news of the gospel, which is the gift of God's grace and rest by placing our faith in Jesus. And putting our faith in Jesus means 
trusting him enough to obey him, to follow him. The Israelites didn't believe, they didn't trust that God could really feed them in the desert. And so they grumbled and they complained and they tried to go back to Egypt. The Israelites didn't believe or trust that God could really help them conquer the promised land. And so they refused to go in and claim it. They disobeyed because they didn't believe. They didn't trust. And Hebrews is warning us not to be the same way. Like the Hebrews, we've been, or rather like the Israelites, we've been offered God's rest. We've been offered the good life the promised land, a life of flourishing and peace in the kingdom. Jesus is still in the process of establishing that will one day be a new heavens and a new earth, flourishing, good, chaos, banished forever. But like the Israelites, in the meantime, while we've had tastes of that rest, for us, it's still a journey. It's still a struggle. And so it takes faith. We have to trust Jesus. We have to trust that he's trustworthy. And that he'll get the job done. And that he'll bring us fully into God's rest. And in the meantime, as Jesus leads us through what sometimes feels like the wilderness, we have to trust that obeying Jesus and following his lead is the best way to go. We have to trust that Jesus' way of taking care of the chaos in the world and bringing us into God's rest is actually better than our way of trying to do it. That we actually don't know better than Jesus how to get to the rest that we all long for. And so Hebrews concludes, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Listen. Listen to God's voice. Listen to the good news of rest that God is offering. Listen to the warning of what we'll miss out on if we don't listen. And then finally, just to back all this up and underline it again, at the end of this passage, we have verses 12 and 13. Beautiful words. Powerful words. Well-known words about God's word. Some of us have probably memorized some of these words. We like to quote them, but often we quote them out of context. Because what they're talking about is the word God is speaking here. The good news that through Jesus, we're offered a place in God's rest. A good life of flourishing and peace and blessing. And then also the warning God is speaking, not to harden our hearts to God's voice, but to listen, to trust, and to obey. Because God's word, verse 12, that word of good news, that word of warning, is alive. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God's word is trying to pierce into our hearts, into its very depths. To touch us at our deepest places. To get through to us. It judges our thoughts and the attitudes of our heart to see if we really do believe, 
to test if we really will walk out that unbelief in obedience. And we can't fake it because verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so we're faced with a choice. H&R Block is calling. (laughs) Will we listen to God's word offering us God's rest? And will we respond in faith and obedience? Or like that couple from New Jersey who almost turned down a million dollars, will we miss out on the rest that God is offering us? Let's pray. God, we can read your word. We can preach it. I can preach it. But only you can make it living and active to pierce our hearts. Help us by your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and to receive fully both the amazing good news and the stern warning that this passage offers us that we need to respond and give our hearts wholeheartedly, give our lives wholeheartedly to Jesus. And we, some of us, we have had wonderful tastes of that rest along the way. But the wilderness has also discouraged us. We've been hurt, and maybe we've been tempted to harden our hearts. And I pray that you would sneak inside by your word, soften our hearts, open us back up, Show us again that you're good. Give us hope so that once again, we can put our trust and our obedience fully in you. In Jesus' name, amen.